любезный совсем не под пару. Well, hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and patrons who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like this podcast, please help support it by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash that's E-U-R-A-K-N-O-T. At some point, I'll have I'll stop spelling this. I think people will get the picture. Or go to EurasianNot.org and find the Patreon button and become a monthly patron. So, Rusana, this week we have something different, um, a, a kind of story we put together based on an interview that we did. And today's episode is about Harbin, um, fits right into our Far Eastern series. So what do you know about Harbin? I know a couple of things. Harbin is essentially a Russian colonial city in what is today northern China. It was originally built as an administrative center for the Chinese Eastern Railway. This railway ran from Chita to Vladivostok and made the whole trip a lot faster. Then after the 1917 revolution, the city went through a real boom because it became an important center of immigration for white Russians who fled the country. You've never been there. Well, I've always wanted to visit Harbin. I, I thought that during my time in the Far East, uh, I would go from Vladivostok, but unfortunately because of COVID and then the war, the borders are sealed pretty well. They recently started flights to Harbin again, but yeah, don't have time anymore. Okay, I I'll tell you an anecdote how I first came across Harbin. It first came to my attention about maybe 10 years ago when I lived in San Francisco. Uh, I took lots of walks through the city and on one of my walks, I stumbled upon a Russian restaurant in the Richmond neighborhood. It was called Ukati. And later I met the restaurant owner, Yekaterina, and she turned out to be a Harbin native. Her parents uh, were white Russian emigres who moved to Harbin, where Yekaterina and her brother were born. But uh, then in late 1940s, after the revolution in China, the family moved to the States. And uh, that's how I learned that a lot of Russians who ended up on the U.S. West Coast in the 1950s, uh, they went through this route from Harbin to Shanghai and then to San Francisco, L.A. and other coastal cities. Uh, one more thing, fun fact, a leading authority on Russian history, Nicholas Rizanovsky, who worked at Berkeley for most of his life, and I think who taught um, Stephen Kotkin and um, other, other uh, historians at Berkeley, he was also a Harbin native. So that, that's an interesting tidbit of trivia uh, about Rizanovsky. Since we are exploring various aspects of the Far East in, in our series, um, I mean, doing an episode on Harbin is kind of a no-brainer. Right, because of its complexity, some you know part of you just mentioned some of those things, and its history really is a microcosm of Russian and Chinese relations and the mixtures of cultures and identities. And really, there's no better person to talk about Harbin than Mark Gamsa. Mark is a historian at Tel Aviv University and the author of Harbin: A Cross-Cultural Biography. He began studying Harbin in the 1990s while he was doing his dissertation research, and he quickly realized that there's little scholarship on the city. But as you know, when you're working on a dissertation, you can't jump on every topic that brushes by you. So he put Harbin aside, 
finished his dissertation, but it stuck with him over the years. And uh, he, he wanted to tell some of the many stories that one can tell about this place. The first thing to know is that Russia built Harbin in 1898 as, as the administrative center of the railway. It was the Chinese Eastern Railway, which was the last leg of the Trans-Siberian. So it was from the very beginning a city founded by foreigners in China. From the foundation until the Bolshevik Revolution and the end of the Russian Civil War in, in the Far East, Harbin was a colonial city. It was not a colony in a legal sense, but still it was fully dominated by the Russian power politically and financially. Now, Marx says that Russians were the majority of the city up until the 1920s. And I think we should pause here and note, and he says, said this in our interview, that by Russians, Marx means subjects of the Russian empire. You know, Harbin was a multi-ethnic city, and there were all sorts of groups uh, from the Russian Empire there, Ukrainians, Jews, Georgians, Tatars, Lithuania, Baltic Germans, and we'll talk about one important Baltic German to Mark's story. And there were also a variety of different ethnic groups from China. This includes, of course, the Han Chinese, Manchus, Mongolians, but also Koreans and others. So when we do speak of Russians here, we're going to specifically mean subjects of the Russian Empire. So just so listeners understand that. <laughs> But I wanted to start our story about Harbin, not at the beginning, but at the end, because what I was su really surprised to learn that there's nostalgia for the Russian, for Russian colonial Harbin, uh, even though the city is almost completely Chinese and all but a few Russians live there now. And so I asked Mark about this, and he says that since the 1990s, people began to speak about Harbin. As a benign cosmopolitan age, in contrast to the brutality of the Japanese rule of, of the 30s and the 40s. Some people in Harbin may be looking back to the years from 1898 until the end of the 20s because they think Harbin back then was a better place than it has been under the Chinese communist rule since the 50s. So being nostalgic for, for the Russian age could also be a way of... I wonder what he means by resistance. Whose resistance is it? I think it's, um, you know, I, I unfortunately I didn't follow up with a question for this, but it is a good question. I assume what he means is, is kind of a resistance against the Chinese rule. Uh, the Chinese communist rule in particular. So maybe idealizing the Russian colonial past is a way of, of kind of like a cultural criticism or a, even a crit just a general criticism of the Chinese communism. I see, I see, I see. Uh -huh. Yeah. And, and you know, it, this actually manifests in really interesting ways because the desire to preserve Russian Harbin has even resulted in a local movement to preserve the Russian architecture. But it's the fate of some of Harbin's other distinctive architecture that now worries Gao Hong. Harbin is losing its characteristics. If we don't try hard enough to preserve these old buildings, our next generation will not remember how Harbin looked like before. The city used to be very beautiful. Harbin's skyline shows why those concerns are perhaps justified. The old architecture competes with the new. And, you know, the tourist industry really does exploit this Russian aspect of Harbin. I mean, the big draws, this annual international ice and snow sculpture festival, 
It's a two-month exhibit that has elaborate ice sculptures and ice palaces and even slides. I mean, if you look online for this, you can see some really great pictures. And it, it draws, this two-month festival draws about 18 million visitors a year, which is just unbelievable. There's also a Russian theme park called the Volga Manor, and it has replicas of Russian architecture, including a replica of St. Nicholas Church, which was built in the city in 1900 when it was under Russian imperial rule, but it was then destroyed in 1966 during the Cultural Revolution. You know, I'm a bit frustrated to hear that Harbin's Russian heritage is exploited the way it is, um, maybe because I'm also a victim of nostalgia. Preparing for this interview, I watched a YouTube video about Harbin put out by this uh, Russian blogger. His name is Yavarlamov, and he shows the historic district, and it looks like it looks just like Disneyland or something. There's this strong, cartoonish character about it. It's hard to describe, but yeah, if you look at pictures online, you'll see what I mean. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I had my own fantasy about Russian Harbin, and it got killed. So does the is it does it look cartoonish because like is it the colors or is it just the the contrast between like the Russian style architecture and the new Chinese style? It's the contrast. It's their desire to put everything in one place. You know, all the best things together on like one square. It's it's the combination of old historic buildings and new buildings next to them, but that were recently built, they were recently erected, but they have nothing to do with history. It, it, it has the like, feeling of maybe uh, like Las Vegas, where they you have an Eiffel Tower and you have uh, this and that, but it's all like kind of yeah, cartoonish. The way Mark writes in his book about Harbin, he's telling a biography of this mixed identity, and he's doing it through one figure, a guy named Dr. Baron Roger Budberg. And Budberg was born in 1867 to a Baltic German noble family uh, from Cortland in Latvia to China in 1904 to serve as a senior doctor for the Russian Red Cross during the Russo-Japanese War. And then I realized later after reading the book that he also um, practiced, his main practice was gynecology in Harbin, which I'm sure has an interesting story behind it. Um, he moved to Harbin specifically in 1905. So I asked Mark what drew him to Budberg. The word for that is uh, serendipity because I, I somehow came across his name uh, not long after beginning my uh, reading on Harbin, and I simply got uh, curious about him. I wanted to know more about the person behind him. From the beginning, he uh, he was a mystery to me. Uh, he was um, a Baltic German nobleman and a medical doctor, and that's already quite an uh, uh, uncommon combination. Um, a person writing from... Uh, uh, Harbin and showing a very unusual admiration for China. There is no previous connection to China on his part. And for some reason, he just loves it. He loves everything of it, not just that. He thinks he has found the, the ideal society. And he says in so many words that he wants to become Chinese. He's a really interesting character. 
like he wants to become Chinese. I'm curious to know like what exactly he means by that. The question is a totally important question because here's this guy, he comes from Latvia, ends up in China and wants to become Chinese. And so, you know, we put the question to Mark, like what is it what did it mean to Bookberg to become Chinese? For him to become Chinese means to speak their language first of all. To marry a Chinese woman and to have a Chinese family, to uh, cultivate uh, friendships with Chinese people, both from the higher society and from the lowest ends of, of the society. It seemed to him that it was a society based on the right ethics. Also in the sense it was one where everybody knew their place. And here maybe is uh, that uh, side of him being a European conservative and an aristocrat who was born into, into a very hierarchical society. So, of course, the China that seemed to him so perfect was a China he, uh, he created in his mind and imagined China, which he very rarely criticized. Okay, well, two things. First... I'm relieved to hear that even the best of us fall prey to fantasies and nostalgic sentiments. But second, I think what makes him so intriguing is that usually when you come across European aristocrats, their view, they usually perceive their own race and their own culture as superior to everyone else. So here we have a, a rare case of something different happening. It, especially, you know, at this time, you know, Budberg is part of the ruling class of Harbin, right? It's a Russian colonial city. And here he decides to take this step. And it's a huge step for all the reasons you say and more, which we'll get into. Um, you know, you're right. Nostalgia really is a powerful thing. Um, so are many fant the fantasies we tell each ourselves. <laughs> In 1907, Budberg's plan to become Chinese took a big step. He married Li Ruzhen. Um, it was the first marriage of a respected member of Harbin's Russian community to a Chinese woman. So here he's breaking a boundary, one can say. Um, now, not much is known about Li before their marriage. Uh, she was likely 14 years old, which wasn't uncommon for uh, Chinese girls to get married at that age. And she came from a village outside of Harbin. I should say there is some speculation that uh, Budberg found her in a brothel. And it turned out, though, that uh, Budberg's marriage didn't make him more Chinese, go figure. Rather, he actually stood out more because of it, right? I mean, you could imagine, uh, especially in these Russian aristocratic circles. And, and it made him a target of ridicule and eventually a target of the police. <laughs> For him, marrying a Chinese was a part of the plan. He needed a local wife to be fully integrated into the Chinese society. I found it symbolic that this German, who was not from Germany, but a Russian subject from the Baltics, wanted to become Chinese, not in China, 
within the Great Wall, but in Manchuria. Then when their um, daughter was born, uh, more than a year later, they called her the Chinese-German flower, Zhongdehua in Chinese, which was a statement not just about who she was, but about who they were. In any case, by going native and marrying a Chinese, Budberg shocked the, the Russian elite in Harbin, to which he belonged by his title and his position as, as a senior physician. He didn't lose his position, but the Russian bureaucracy never uh, legally recognized his marriage. And on the long run, he faced ridicule, at best as a chudak, eccentric, which he was. But uh, there were also racial slurs at, at both his Germanness and his Chineseness. And once Russia and Germany collided in the Great War, and the Russians in Harbin began looking for German spies, he was a natural candidate. And he was put in prison for more than a year in 1915. It's clear that he was a target not just for being critical of the Russian power and the Russian society, but because of defiantly identifying with the Chinese, even positioning himself as the protector of the Chinese from the Russians. I'm starting to like this guy more and more and understand now why Mark chose him to be the main character of his book. He's a revolutionary. He's the breaker of social barriers. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? His desire to, he respected and embraced Chinese culture so much, he put his entire standing at stake. So, you know, obviously then, the next mystery about Budberg was his relationship to his Russianness. Now, his issue is not an ethnic issue. It's more about being a subject of the Russian Empire and, of course, being steeped in Russian culture. He was highly critical of the Russians and of Russia, with the one exception of the Tsar. There was a tradition of Baltic German loyalty to the Tsars. So he's not very untypical in, in the sense that he does not like Russians and is very critical of, of the actions of Russia as a colonial power in uh, Manchuria. And yet this somehow mellows, this changes somehow in the 1920s where you see that he starts to have some uh, Russian friends and contacts. Maybe because by the 20s, uh, the Russians were no longer the colonial masters. They were mostly refugees, including uh, himself, who had lost his status as a subject of the Russian Empire. And what also changes that in the 20s, he suddenly starts uh, to write in Russian. He never did that before. He wrote uh, strictly in German. But by the end of his life, and he died in the 26, uh, he uh, wants to have a dialogue with Russian society in uh, Harbin. Uh, I, I never thought about it in these terms, but it must have been quite painful for Russians to transition pretty much overnight from these powerful colonial masters to political refugees. And I'm sure it impacted Russian-Chinese relations in a dramatic way. Yeah, for sure. In fact, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Bookberg is he is this unique example of the complexities of identities in Harbin. And his life does serve as a window into these Russian and Chinese relations. 
You know, as Mark said, Harbin was a Russian colonial outpost until the late 1920s. And so it begs another question is, how did these two people, the Chinese and Russians, live with each other? Politics is a hugely determining factor in this dynamic between the Russians and, and the Chinese. But the other key factor was cultural. It, it was an encounter between two cultures, uh, both of which considered themselves superior, very well aware of their uh, achievements and their uh, particularity. On the, the Russian side, there was, of course, also the religious aspect of it. The Chinese were the ultimate other. Their language was considered entirely uh, impossible to learn. Their culture was different and strange. And the Chinese had, of course, their very old tradition of considering themselves the center of the world, not just the most civilized nation, but perhaps the only civilization there is. It was a perception of uh, disdain towards the Russians. And the Russians felt quite similarly about the Chinese as well. So you have this meeting of two sides, both of whom really consider themselves much better. Still, given that both sides were reluctant to, to communicate, the Chinese were still far more ready to learn the Russian language, uh, largely because for the first two decades, they were the weaker side. They needed the Russians and even depended on them. Uh, even later in, in, in the 30s, some Chinese continued to regard some forms of contact with Russians as avenues of upward mobility. But again, generally speaking, there was little love lost between them, and each side was the happiest not to be disturbed. So why did each side consider themselves superior to each other? Yeah, I, I was actually thinking about something like along these lines too earlier today, that we tend to, you know, when it comes to this superiority, superior culture, this universalism, we tend to think of it in terms of European powers, and we, we less think of it in terms of Asian powers. And it's interesting that you do have these two people who have similar disregard for each other. <laughs> and for the same reasons, each thinks themselves are essentially the shit. <laughs> and the other is, is you know, not worth anything. Um, but it's a, it's a city. Um, Russians and Chinese shared spaces, of course, just like in any urban environment. And it's not surprising you know, given some of the animosities, that they measured uh, each other through public displays of sexuality. There was a certain sexual tension, uh, you might say. And the main scene for that was the beach, where the Russians would go and undress in order to, to swim in the river. And there was by then no such tradition in China. Uh, certainly not of men and uh, women swimming nearly naked. And looking at that, the Chinese had quite mixed feelings, both curiosity and uh, attraction, especially from those male uh, writers who described uh, Russian uh, women on the beach, and at the same time feelings of offense, uh, that this was not uh, proper, and that foreigners were behaving in a way that was entirely contrary to the acceptable moral standards. Then you have that side of prostitution in 
Harbin, which raises the question uh, who the women were and who were their, their clients. I could just say that uh, it was one of the effects of the decline of the standing of the Russians in Harbin uh, from, from the 20s, when also um, a great numbers of uh, very poor refugees landed there. Uh, one of the effects was that the women turned to prostitution as a means to make ends meet in uh, the 20s and the 30s. Now I can see that promiscuity was one of the reasons to disdain <laughs> Russians in Harbin. Uh, you're definitely not going to hear anything like that from these proper white Russians sharing their nostalgia for their life in the city. Okay, so okay, so generally the Chinese and the Russians tried to stick to their own kind. I'm curious if there were any defectors and how like generally people communicate with each other. You know, despite this mutual disdain, this word we keep using, I think it, it's quite fitting. Uh, Mark explains that there were intermediaries who connected with both communities. Most of these, of course, were Chinese. And, and during the Russian colonial period, that makes sense because the Chinese are mostly the laborers to Russians who, who employ them. There were some people who did have a leg in each of the camps, so to speak. And knowing the language of the other was a capital that could be put to use. There was a need of uh, interpreters, for example, to manage relations with the Chinese workers hired by the Russians, and the need for brokers to manage business deals between the two sides. There were Chinese businessmen who learned Russian, started out as uh, interpreters and uh, brokers, and then went on to lead successful business enterprises in Harbin, and then lower on, on the social scale. There were the numerous men and women who had to communicate on some basic level with the other side, like the many Chinese who worked for the Russians, for example, as cooks and servants. Again, having some rudiments of Russian lifted a simple Chinese migrant from the prospect of doing basic coolie work to a better paid job in the city. You know, language is a good indicator of um, socioeconomic relations in the country and between nations. And um, as Mark was saying this, I thought, when Americans start learning foreign languages, we know that its economy is in trouble. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, actually, it, it actually does say something about, you know, continuing this conversation about Harbin, where the fact that even after the Russian colonial period is over, Russian is seen as a language for advancement. You know, as he said a moment ago, uh, a little while ago about the 20s and 30s. But yeah, you're right. Language is is a, is indicative of power for sure. You know, so so the political and cultural and racial tensions colored relations between Russians and Chinese and Harbin. But uh, though these communities stayed mostly separate, there was nonetheless some cross-fertilization. And Mark gave us some examples. Let me say this about food. It was uh, certainly one of the main arenas in which people expressed a sense of who they were. They needed to have their kind of food. But once they had that, they could try some dishes from the other cuisines as well. And 
retrospectively, it seems to me that they started to like the food of the others more once those others were gone and no longer posed a threat to their own identity as Russians or as Chinese. So the Chinese in Harbin today have turned um, a bread, which is known by the pidgin word Lieba from Chleb, into one of the symbols of their city. Other popular local dishes include smoked pork sausage with Chinese spices, sauerkraut with noodles, and priyoshki. And my favorite example is the festival by which Harbin is now best known in China and, and beyond. That's the very colorful ice and snow sculpture festival, which has been taking place every year for a month, starting from January the 5th. Just put Harbin Ice Festival in your search engine and you'll see exactly what I mean. Carved by up to 15,000 sculptors and designed by local engineering students, the ice structures range from mythical creatures to historic monuments. Like the Russians in Harbin had a tradition, though. Uh, every year on January the 6th by the Julian calendar, from 1921, they staged a huge procession on the ice of the river Sungari. Thousands of people walked in that procession, uh, which was led by priests on the ice uh, towards a cross, which was carved out of ice blocks. I, I see it all comes together now. The contemporary festival grew out of the Russian Orthodox celebration of Epiphany, which would be on January 6th. And in fact, um, before you leave the Far East, I think you absolutely need to go to this ice festival and let us know what it's like. <laughs> I, I would definitely, I'd love to, yeah. So, you know, as, as Mark said earlier, Harbin is now a Chinese city. There are about 10,000 Russians that still live there today, and they come as students or as migrant workers. Uh, even Russians are employed as professional Russians in that Volga Manor theme park. So that's another thing you need to report on when you go there. <laughs> now, Russians began leaving Harbin in the 1920s, and what was once a population of about 185,000, by the late 1930s, it had fallen to about 30,000. And it's important to remember uh, as Mark says, that at one time, Harbin was a center for Russian immigration on par with Paris, Berlin, and Prague. And I have to say, I never thought of Harbin in, this, in these terms before. Um, and the Russians in Harbin created institutions similar to those in Europe. They had a press, they had churches, they had a vibrant literary, music, theater, and art scene. They also had schools and a university. Um, but because Harbin was a colonial city, Russian immigrants there also had government offices, uh, unlike their compatriots in Europe. So again, because of that colonial past, even once they were refugees, they still had some sort of foothold in, in the community or in the city there. Another difference was that Harbin was much more insular and self-contained than those European centers. And the Russians uh, 
who lived there uh, assimilated much less than the Russians in France or in Germany. And still, uh, despite being recognized as the eastern branch of, of the Russian immigration at the time, the Russians in Harbin were treated with some disdain by the Russians in Europe, precisely because of living in Asia among, among the Chinese. Did you know this issue about Harbin? I mean, I... I remember hearing about the city being a center of Russian immigration, but as Mark says, I actually had never heard it about it on par with Paris or Prague or Berlin. Had you known about Harbin as this main center of Russian immigration, of culture, immigrant cultural life? Well, like, as I was saying earlier, it first came to my attention in San Francisco when I realized that a lot of people who came to the States and also South America and Australia, they came through this route, through Harbin, and a lot of them were born in Harbin, like Yekaterina. And then recently I went to um, a bookstore in Vladivostok, uh, like a bookstore that sells books of local publishing companies. And there is this publishing company called Rubiash which I think took its name from a newspaper or a journal that was published in Harbin. And they have a whole series on Russian writers who lived and worked in Harbin. So I got one book for my mom as a, as a gift uh, to bring to Petersburg. And so that's when I thought, okay, there was, there was a flourishing literary and art scene in Harbin. I mean, so much so that it merits a whole series so, you know, for the most part, the fate of Russian Harbinites is an incredibly tragic one. And two moments are pivotal in this history. The first is when the Japanese occupied Harbin in 1931. And then when the USSR sold the railway to the Japanese in 1935. And this turned an immigrant community into a refugee community. Now, it's important to note they became a refugee community also after 1917. But the loss of the railroad was pivotal because the Soviet government had no way to protect Russians living under Japanese occupation, and many were forced to leave the city or to repatriate back to the USSR. So I would imagine this is the moment you get that Shanghai um, route that you were speaking about. And of course, uh, once they came back to the USSR, they were arrested as spies. Almost 50,000 Harbinites were arrested, and about 30,000 of them were executed during Stalin's terror. So, I mean, that's an incredible number of a ratio between arrests and executions. Yeah, this is, this is truly tragic. People wanted to go back and help their country despite the fact that the government changed and they did not support it, etc. But they were kind of willing to compromise, to make peace with them in order to, you know, to help their own, to help their motherland. And like, I mean, there is a wave of immigration right now, right? People fleeing the war. And I, I, I can't imagine any of them coming back out of this duty for their country. And so... What were those people thinking? Were they really misinformed about Stalin and the terror that was happening? Or they were that naive? Or, or did they actually miss their homeland that much? Yeah, it's really, it is really hard to say. And I think those are all valid questions. Um, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't, and Mark doesn't, doesn't, his book doesn't treat the terror, so he doesn't speak to it. And I'd be curious to know myself. 
Um, now, the remaining Russian Harbonites left the city in the 1950s after the Chinese Revolution. And this is probably when Nicholas Rezanovsky made his way to Berkeley. Uh, so, you know, what can be said about the Harbin experience and this nostalgia for the Russian period that we started with? The former Harbinites, whether in Russia on, or elsewhere in the world, have tended to remember their city in a, in a nostalgic way. This is reflected in memoirs and in scholarship they published in, and, and in uh, the associations they formed. By now, not many of the people who left Harbin in the 1950s are still with us. But until about 10 or 15 years ago, some of these Harbinites were still very active and maintained their contacts. It was, and partly still is, a network of people united by the memory of Harbin and of China, even though uh, there were tensions too, especially between those who chose uh, to return uh, to Russia and those who went to the West. There is, of course, a contradiction between the unwillingness of most of the Russians in Harbin to even learn Chinese while they still lived there and the tender memories of China, which they developed later. But this was also a nostalgia for a time of their youth. And China could be seen more welcoming once it was no longer a threat to their Russian identity, but a symbol of the home they lost. Makes total sense. Don't we all have tender memories of our youth? But jokes aside, it's pretty impressive that uh, decades after they left China, people still stuck together and... It seems that their experience of living in Harbin made them identify with Harbin later on very strongly, uh, so much so that like Harbinse <laughs> becomes like a real thing. In one of the interviews, a woman said that Harbin w was like a code word for them. If you mentioned that you spent time with them, you instantly became your own, you know, part of, part of the community. This episode of the Eurasian Knot was written, edited, and produced by Sean Guillory and Rusana Novikova. Thanks to Mark Gamsa for participating. And for a full list of musical credits, go to eurasiannot.org. And as you know, this is the Eurasian Knot, and I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your co-host, Rusana Novikova. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So if you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media and tell all your friends about us. Also, feel free to drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or at EurasianKnot.org and let us know what you think of the show, what you think of some of the new things we're trying out the format. And of course, as always, if you like the Eurasian Knot, we would love your support. This podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals and other educational institutions to keep it completely free to listeners and free from paid advertisements. So please help us keep it that way. Go to the EurasianKnot.org and become a monthly patron. Until next time, bye. Bye. Чуть-чуть а потом ее встретим, чтоб не убежал.